This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Avril Kenny, welcome to Better Reading. Hi, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe we haven't spoken before or met before. We haven't, oh, no. we haven't have we? No, not really. I've done some of the, the lives on Better Reading, so it feels like we have. Yeah. So Avril is an author who lives in tropical far north Queensland and with her family. And you've been there since you were eight, you were saying? I'm about eight, yeah, that's right. I only lived away for a little bit during uni in Brisbane, but apart from that, I've been here most of my entire life. She grew up on dairy farms and worked in tourism before studying education and journalism. Um, her first novel is Those Hamilton Sisters, which was hugely popular at Better Reading. And she has just released her second novel, The Girls of Lake Air. Set in North Queensland in the 50s, it tells the story of a runaway bride who escapes to a small town with intriguing residents and a mysterious lake. Um, So you're new to writing. Oh, no, I've been writing. Oh, well, I'd made up my mind I had to be an author at five. So (laughs) my entire life, it's it's felt like my life's purpose and everything I did was always with that one eye on becoming an author. So um, new to to publishing, though. New to being published. So um, this is my second novel now. So two novels in two years. So this still feels very much like newbie territory for me. Mm, Absolutely. So where did you grow up? Uh, So I grew up in Naruma on the south coast of New South Wales on a dairy farm, which had been our family for generations. Um, I had grandparents just over the hill. Um, My dad was the the um, main dairy farmer on the property. Um, so I had a very much a um, stomping through cow pats kind of childhood. Um, I didn't have a younger sibling for a couple of years. So it was um, very much a, not a lonely childhood, but a childhood with great expanse for imagination where I spent so much time wandering around and I was dad's girl. So um, I f- feel like that very much plays into who I am today and my love of um time alone and using my imagination. Mm. And love of animals, I guess. What was a day like on a dairy farm for for a child? Did you get involved in anything? Um, I was my dad's little accomplice. So um, my mum, actually, I did give a little nod to it in um, The Girls of Lake Evelyn. I would be out of my cot by the age of 18 months at the crack of dawn and I'm trotting off down the farm after my dad. So, and then I'd come home with my dad um, once the milking was done on his shoulders to um, cook breakfast by mum. So I did actually put a big nod to that in the book because my mum was always so delighted that I would climb out my, you know, cloth nappy hanging down between my knees off down the paddock. I don't know what my poor Nana thought about this because I must have looked quite the sight, but yeah. Um, And then I was sort of in and out. Dad actually did what was, I guess, um, a little bit 
adventurous back then. He'd baby wear, like he'd, you know, like mothers do now where they put their babies on them and carry them around. And my dad would have a, a backpack, a sort of baby wearing backpack. And he'd actually carry me around the farm with him for a great part of the day. I'd be there as he was fencing on his back and while he was chopping trees. And um, yeah, I was very much part of the day. I'd be in and out of my grandparents' house. And yeah, I just sort of moved with the rhythms of the farm day. Mm. And so why did they move? It was just a very difficult life for them. Um, financially, wasn't viable for them. Um, and so my um, my mother's family offered a tourism opportunity up in far north Queensland with coaches. So they thought, well, we'll just move up for one year. So we left our family dog um, behind and we thought we'll be back in a year. We'll just go out and make some money. And we've been here ever since. What was the tourism industry? What did you I'm say it was? Driving coaches. So doing tours all around the region. And oh, farm. wow. And so my dad was already driving big trucks to try and um, keep the farm afloat and he'd drive at night time. And so he had, you know, the license to be able to drive coaches. So, and then obviously my dad was able to bring in his love of storytelling because he was um, guiding tourists around. So it was a, it was a different job, but um, it was still dad out in nature, which is something he always loved. And I think that's where I get that from. And so at age, that's quite formative, isn't it? Leaving, you know, what you know, and moving somewhere else. Do you have a memory of that and and how that was for you? Absolutely. Yeah. One of my clearest memories is being in my um, classroom and the teacher saying, so Avril's leaving us and she's going to far north Queensland and the place is full of crocodiles. There's crocodiles everywhere. You won't be able to swim. Um, It's, you know, very wild. And I thought we were leaving to some, you know, (laughs) very forbidding place. Yeah. I still remember getting off the plane for the first time and mum said, we'll just get away from the jet engine. As soon as we get away from the jet engine, it'll be a bit cooler. We'll just get away from the engine. And um, no, we've never got away from the engine. It's still, it's just blazing hot. And we arrived in the middle of winter and it was still so hot, you know, and I remember just sleeping with not even a sheet on and the fan rattling away. And it was all, it was a huge novelty to me and something that has very much impressed itself upon me. In my fiction, I have two sets of characters who arrive in far north Queensland from a very different place. Um, And that's something I was able to explore really well because that was my experience. And as you said, it was a formative time. You know, I've had, grew up in such a different place and then came to this enchanted land um, and something that was wrapped up with exploring and traveling through my parents' work. So, and what about this transition for school for you? Because that can be difficult at that age. Oh, yeah. So, we uh, had a, I had a lot of difficulties because they had a special type of writing in Queensland at the time and I didn't know it. And so, I felt like I was behind and I'd always actually been a bright child. And then I felt I was about six to 12 months behind when, in fact, we're probably a bit ahead in New South Wales, I believe, with the curriculum. But I spent a lot of time off on the side doing this writing in these writing books trying to get the Queensland cursive so um, that was another experience for me I did there was a couple of years there where I felt maybe a little bit like I was behind my peers Mm. I feel that you know kids that move around um, or even just move that is it's it's often a trigger for imagination. It's an, often a trigger to create your own world if there's some kind of adversity that happens to you when you're younger. And, and it doesn't have to be terrible, but it could be that you live on a remote property or that you've changed schools and you don't fit in. Do you think that that was for you? Do you, do you were you still thinking about reading and writing at that time? Yes. So, I mean, to answer the first part, we had, I think we lived in about five or six different rental properties and I I had about four or five different primary schools. So we moved on and I had to deal with that, making new friends and, um, 
So there's that side of it, which definitely impacted me again with that, not loneliness, but a lot of time to myself. I I then had younger siblings by that point, but just a lot of time. I would wander around whatever yard or house we had dreaming, daydreaming. I just, I love talking like a soap opera out loud to myself. So I, we didn't have a TV growing up either. So a, a huge part of my life was reading and entertaining myself with my verbal soap operas. The other side has been that I've always I guess, understood my own life through writing, um, Mm -hmm. through reading as well, but through writing. So I can't really remember a a time in my life when I wasn't keeping a journal of some description um, or writing little stories, which were usually reflective of my current life. So it's, you know, even through all those moves and upheaval, I was always trying to understand my life through writing. Mm. And so then did you guys finally settle into a home, like a longer-term home? Hmm, We did. And so when I started high school, we moved out here um, to this beautiful valley, which was um, mostly sugarcane. It had been a lot of fruit in earlier generations, mostly sugarcane, though, huge mountains, um, a deep ravine with waterfalls and this idyllic creek. So once we moved out there, that really informed you know, those growing up years for me, because you were playing in the creek all the time and you were exploring all these areas and, you know, growing up the sugarcane fires, which were literally just the paddock over. And you would have those, the great flakes of, you know, sugarcane ash coming over. And so I uh, was able to bring that to life in those Hamilton sisters, because that was the way I grew up in those you know, again, very formative teenage years. So with high school, high schools in locations like that, was there a high school in the area? It kind of in like a regular high school, was it? No, no, no. no. There was a very old historic primary school, but I used to have to catch the bus into town to go to high school, which was where I met my husband on the school bus. Because we wouldn't get home until about 4.30 in the afternoon. It was this massive trek home on the bus, stopping at all these different high schools. And mm. and would you say that they were happy days? Oh, wonderful. Absolutely. Wonderful. So you found your feet in high school. Absolutely. Yeah. And I yeah. was able to stay at the same high school and make friends that we still know today. And obviously then I met my husband as well. So, you know, those, I can now look right back to those years and we've got those shared memories together. So. Yeah. Lovely. So tell me about what you did when you finished school that's led you to writing. Cause you've done a bit since being published. Is that right? Um, I I actually did six years of university all up. I started out wanting to be a teacher because being very naive, I thought, well, I'll have lots of holidays and lots of time off. (laughs) And And short working hours, like never. Um, And I I really, I mean, I thought I would be good at teaching. I wanted to be an English teacher, but they didn't offer high school teaching in Cairns. So I thought, well, I'll be a primary school teacher because I can still teach a love of literature to children. And I thought, well, this will work well because my other abiding goal of my life had been becoming a mum. So I really thought, well, this way I can do both of those things. Um, And I got um, three years into that degree. Um, My husband and I then moved down to the University of Queensland and I finished out with a journalism degree. So um, I changed track there. I felt it was very much seize the seize the day. And when that, when my husband and I, we hadn't actually been together since high school. And when we met, it was all this big flurry in a three month period of get together. And now we're going to move down to the University of Queensland. And I said, well, that's it. I'm going to do a bachelor of, I think it was creative writing. And I didn't quite have the courage for that. So I thought I'll do journalism, still trying to think strategically. I'll do journalism and that way I can make a career of my writing, but I can also um, learn to be a better writer and become a published author. 
And then after that, I did a little bit of journalism, but I actually went to the dark side and did um, PR. So, oh, you did? Yeah, the other side, yeah. Um, and so I came back to Cairns and did a lot of um, tourism PR and everything from writing brochures to itineraries, um, publicity for tourism companies. And when did you start thinking about writing a novel? Well, I actually wrote my first novel at 19 when I was still doing my teaching degree, a terrible novel, um, and it will never see the light of day. And my husband's the only one who's actually ever read that. And I gave that to him almost as a test when we got together in my um, mid-20s. I gave it to him and I said, well, you take this home and read it because you need to know this is what I'm going to do with my life. Um, But actually parts of that novel will find their way into future novels. I do know that. But I had been writing all the time. So I, I would start a story, or I would do a short story, or I wrote poetry. I used to write my own poetry books and give them as gifts to my lucky friends and families. So. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Um, no, I uh, actually started writing in earnest um, my first novel when I had my first child. I would be heavily pregnant walking around the sugarcane farms and the idea for the story first came to me. So we'd be walking through after work and this beautiful golden light would be hitting the really tall, you know, sugarcane um, fields in flower. And I just, I knew the main character, I, that I, I knew what her happy ending would be and I knew how that story would play out. So I sort of had that key idea. And then after my um, first child was born, I, I had more ideas come to me and it was just percolating away all the time. And then I had another three children in the space of under four years. And wow. then um, I sat down when my third child was a newborn baby. Um, she was just asleep on my chest one day and I opened this hardcover journal and I just started writing. Didn't really sit down with any idea to plot anything. I just started writing and um, wrote an entire chapter out by hand. So the first line of my novel to this day is the same line that I wrote, maybe a word or two tweaked. It's the same line. So, And it's the same chapter. It's the same scene that I wrote on that day. And so from then I just continued on um, writing when I had, um, you know, inspiration or time to do that. Mm. So what were you reading around those? Were you reading anything? I mean, I don't know how a person gets to read when they have three children, but maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Did you say you had three or four? I've got four now. Four now. Time under four, yeah. Yeah. I actually developed postnatal depression anxiety not long after that. So writing was a, I've always um, since then known that writing, if I don't write, if I'm not using my imagination, I, my imagination will just put me through the terrors, you know, Mm. it just Mm. entertains itself with the most morbid, horrible things. So I've, I've very much used writing as a um, coping mechanism to, you know, burn off some of that imagination. Um, at the time, what was I reading? Um, I think in my 20s, oh, I loved anything set in England. I was reading Philippa Gregory novels. Mm. I always would come back and reread my L.M. Montgomery novels, um, Jane Austen, Georgette Hare. Um, but I, d- I did read a lot of those kind of things back in those days. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I was very much into anything with a castle and some strong woman <laughs> overcoming. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Talk to me about your postnatal depression. Mm. Mm. Um, So it took the form for me of what they now call health anxiety, um, which in the old days we used to say hypochondria. Jane Austen's very good at sort of depicting that in her characters. Um, It took the form of I felt at any moment I would be taken away from my children. It was that weight of responsibility of having three children all under primary school age at home, being the sole parent at home with my husband. He's always had to work long hours um, as a structural engineer. And I think it was just the weight of responsibility. And it it felt like at any moment I was going to die from some terrible cancer um, or something like that, that was just, you know, the worst, most terrible story you've ever read was going to happen to me. And so health anxieties, it's, it's a terrible anxiety because it involves checking behaviors and you you need reassurance constantly from medical personnel. Um, and so that's very time consuming and costly on a family running, running to the doctor all the time. Um, and, you know, going down the path of scans and. How did you identify it? So, I mean, it seems to me that with any kind of depression, but particularly postnatal depression, do you think some of it comes from fatigue Mm-hmm. You know, you probably weren't sleeping properly. You were exhausted. Do you think there's an element of that in there as well? Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. I, I was I was breastfed all my children for a long time, and that obviously involves a lot of night waking. Um, yeah. And so I was oh, terribly sleep deprived. And even today, I when I get sleep deprived, I know my anxiety will come up. So I understand enough now about it through um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which I've done a number of times now. I understand what the intrusive thoughts are. But at the time, mm-hmm. when it first started happening and the anxiety would come up, I genuinely, you believe it. You think, mm-hmm. well, that mole on my arm must be. Mm-hmm. A terrible melanoma because mm. that intrusive thought is so convincing. Mm. So now I can understand how to work with my own brain. But at the time, no, I believed all of the things. So there was quite a chaotic period of about three months where we actually moved in um, with my husband's parents and then with my own parents. They lived on the same street, which was wonderful. Um, and we actually used their support to get through that because it was quite intense until I was willing to hop on that bridge of medication, which was with health anxiety, you can sometimes be afraid to take medication or anything. So I was afraid to take that step. So before I went on the medication, we used family support. And then once I was on that, you know, the bridge of medication and was um, seeing a therapist for cognitive behavioral therapy, then it was very, quick turnaround from there. And that was probably the worst time I went through with my anxiety because I didn't understand what it was. I just believed that, well, there must be something wrong in my body and all my mind's trying to tell me, you know, with this terrible foreboding that there's something wrong. Did you write about that in your journal? Um, I definitely have. Yeah. I I thought a little bit into my character Plum in those Hamilton sisters. Um, There was a lot more of that in the book, but I did actually, we had to cull the book down. It was about 160,000 words. Um, So before I submitted it for publication, I did cull a lot of that, Mm -hmm. but that's definitely something I I have explored with my characters before being something that I understand so well now. Mm. So were you writing when you were suffering postnatal depression? Were you writing fiction? Were those stories in your head as well or you didn't have space for that? 
No. Well, I mean, I don't know which comes first. I, as I said, I yeah. feel when I'm not channeling my imagination, when I'm not using my creativity, it's like a superpower that, you know, turns to evil or something. And I don't know whether that preceded it, that I was so occupied with the daily toil of children and I wasn't exercising. And I'm, I'm, I'm a fiend for exercise. I run, I loved, and that's another thing that's very helpful for me. So I wasn't doing any of those things that channeled that energy and creativity and imagination. So I don't know if that came first. Um, If it was the sleep deprivation, it was definitely hormones. But when I got back to writing, then I knew I was on the way to recovery. So once I was able to start going for a run, and because I find when I'm in a period of anxiety, I close up. I sort of, I go into the freeze mode and I, I don't, I can't leave my house. I have to just stay there and, and feel anxious or, you know, in that little tight ball. So once I can become expansive again and start running and start writing, then I know that I'm, you know, I'm doing the best thing for me. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I like how you're talking about it as well, because it is a subject that wasn't spoken about for so many years. I mean, more and more now I'm hearing mothers particularly talk about it, but it really had been a taboo, hadn't it, for such a long time. At the time of going through that for me, I'd recently read about celebrities such as, you know, Brooke Shields and mm. what she through. And that was so important because it wasn't something I had known about relatives in my own family who had um, gone through my own grandfather and they would go to their room and they would shut the door and they couldn't come out of their room. So I'd known about it, but it wasn't really something there was a lot of language for before that. But, you know, even just your your commonplace magazines would expose Mm. people willing to talk about it. And that, that gave you language to hook onto. Absolutely. And also to know that so many people have suffered it. So many. Mm-hmm. So when did you start writing the Hamilton Sisters or at what point did you think that I think I've got a novel here? Mm. So it was the novel that I knew I ha- I knew I wouldn't be abandoning it. It was the novel I had to finish. It was the book I wanted to read and I was going to write it the way I wanted to, to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, I started writing about 2009 when my third child was born and um, I turned 30 in um, a year later. And so I said, well, I'm going to be published by the time I'm 40. So that was my goal. I've got a decade. I'm going to finish this novel and be published by the time I'm 40. Um, And so I just kept working on it whenever inspiration would come to me and I could dream a scene for three months um, before I would sit down and write it. But then when I got to about my mid-30s, all of a sudden I realised that, you know, I was halfway through a novel and there was still a long process of trying to get published ahead of me. So I really knuckled down at that point. I actually then had my fourth child and even that wasn't enough to throw me off. I was really determined by that point. Um, and I just dug in and by about 2017, I had a manuscript to send out to my, um, beta readers. So my early readers who were people I had met. Um, I actually had a motherhood blog, uh, during the early stages of, of motherhood. And I built up quite a loyal readership there of, um, and they became, many of them became friends, um, other writers as well who were doing blogs. And um, many of them I actually used as my early readers with my manuscripts because I felt, well, they were people who knew my writing style and loved my writing style. So, uh, and also I could trust them to be honest. So I sent out my manuscript, sort of I'd send it out for three months to a reader. And then once I got feedback, I'd send it out to another one. It was sort of a lengthy process. And um, once I felt it was ready, then I tried a few slush piles. So I sent it off to the email addresses where 
you know, you don't hear anything back. There's no feedback. And I thought, well, if this manuscript has merit, it's going to be picked up and it'll be the fairy tale Harry Potter um, story where, you know, they'll be all passing the pages and saying, wow, it's the next big, big thing. But that was my imagination running off with itself again. And um, so I did try a couple of slush piles without any word or feedback. And then I had to regroup after that. So by that stage, I was very close to my 40th birthday, um, which was in 2020. Um, and I had about a year left and I thought, well, I'm not going to give up on the dream of being published by 40. There's no way. Um, I'm quite stubborn like that. So I thought, okay, I'm going to self-publish. And I'd read all the wonderful success stories of self-publishing. And I knew that if you were a determined person who was willing to do the work and um, you had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, I thought, okay, I can do this. So then I started going down that path and that involved getting a cover designer. So I was lucky to have so many amazing freelance cover designers to choose from here in Australia, freelance editors. And I found the most brilliant freelance editor in Alexandra Nalis. So I sent my manuscript away to her while I was um, kind of collating the rest of it. This was coming into the start of 2020. Mm -hmm. And um, I got to work on a big birthday book launch party idea. So I was going to have this massive big 40th birthday party um, launching my first novel. And obviously that was never going to happen unbeknownst to me because of the pandemic. Um, And as it turned out, I spent my 40th birthday in complete lockdown. And I think my husband and I snuck up to a waterfall and drank pink gin. That was my 40th birthday. But yeah, so um, then when my manuscript came back um, from my editor, um, she wrote the most beautiful, heartwarming things about the story. And the first line that I could read on the preview of my email actually said, called my novel incredible. And that was, that was probably the biggest moment for me of, um, it was the first actual validation or feedback I'd had from the publishing industry and from someone who, you know, was so amazing. Mm -hmm. So when I read that, that was, I guess the moment when I realized that maybe my dream was going to come true, take a different form, but come true. And then she, um, had done the full edit of my novel and she urged me to consider approaching a literary agent. So I hadn't tried that. I had no idea how to go about it, but she actually recommended and was able to introduce me to Selwa Anthony. Mm -hmm. So I sent my manuscript away um, the old fashioned way, actually. So it was printed out, wrapped up in brown paper, tied up with red string um, and posted away to um, Selwa. And um, within a couple of weeks, I'd heard back and that she wanted to take me on as her author. And um, then not long after that, we actually, we made a few more changes together, um, which her feedback was just the final missing piece. She had, she has such an eye and she understands my fiction in a way that I, it still freaks me out because she sees everything I try to hide and everything I'm trying to sweep under the, under the carpet, she sees it. And so after that, it went out on submission and I was very lucky to get a um, two book deal with Bonnier Echo. So for that was for publication here in Australia, in the UK. Yeah, it all happened. It all happened. 2020. Uh, Congratulations. And that's why you're on this podcast. So you missed your 40th birthday, but it wasn't, it was soon after that, I guess, wasn't it? Mm, It was published a year later, actually. Okay. Well, that's close enough. No, that's right. I received the publication offer before my 40th birthday. So, and did you know at the time that you were writing genre fiction that where that space is for a book like yours? Did you know about that? No, no. As I 160,000 words long and it included everything from mental health to women's issues to what I thought was a little bit of a literary flair and you know I really I was writing the book that I wanted to read and 
it still remains a book that I love to find on bookshelves in a bookshop. It's just, it had both landscape and women's issues. It had romance and uh, some thrills in it. And not that I, I didn't really try to put it into any pigeonhole, uh, but the, one of the first things Selwa, my agent said to me was, um, it's genre fiction. Um, it's women's fiction. And, um, you know, that, that was really wonderful to hear because I hadn't really thought of it as, oh, she said it's commercial fiction. And mm. I hadn't really thought of it as, you know, as a mm. story that would necessarily be wildly popular. I just knew that I was writing to the kind of reader who loves the books I love. No, it's beautiful. And so our audience, of course, responded so well to those Hamilton sisters. They love the story. And the book did well for a first book, you know, that's not an easy achievement, as you probably know. But also, I mean, you know, there's all the work that goes about on behind it, but then putting it out there into the marketplace and allowing the readers to come back with their feedback, one, must be daunting. But two, how does that affect you writing a second? Hmm. I was fortunate in the sense that I started writing the second to a deadline before the first was actually out in the world. So I'd had all the glowing praise and uh, the wonderful yeah. support and all the, you know, the, the beautiful things said by my editor and from my agent and from people I worked with. So I was still built up in that beautiful cloud of positive feelings. Um, not that I've had anyone say anything that's really bring me down in these two years, but I was still at that point. So I found it very hard though to start a second book because I thought, well, my heart won't be in this because I've mm. poured everything I love and all my wealth of um, experience into my first book. What could I possibly write? And certainly when I started writing it, I probably got about 10 chapters in when I sent that off to my agent to see how we were tracking. Yeah, it, it, that my heart wasn't in it. And she knew that. And she could point out every character who didn't belong, everyone who was a cardboard cutout, everything that just wasn't coming from my heart. So I was right in that, mm-hmm. in that insecurity that I wasn't writing from my heart. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's common. I think that's common for a second novel. And it was very daunting to think that I had done it over 10 years. So I thought, well, I can't do this in a year. How how will I possibly be able to make it as magical? And how will my writing be as nice? <laughs> you know, um, it felt like all the polishing I'd done over 10 years was what had made that novel when in fact it, it wasn't the polishing. I think you can perhaps over-polish things. Mm. And so are you as, oh, well, of course you would be, but so did you finish it in a year? Mm. I did. book. And that was with all the editing of the first book as well and learning the ropes. Um, yeah. it was, it's, it's a learning curve. So I was, you know, there the last right was the sprint to the finish line. Over the Christmas period, um, I went up to my bedroom and shut the door for three weeks and my husband just took over everything. You know, he was feeding the children. He, You know, they'd knock on the door to give me a cup of tea and my dinner and that would be it, um, you know, I to get over the line at the end. So certainly there were moments like that. And I did actually, once I was into the story during the year, I found it so difficult to put it down and go back to edit the first book. You know, I'd fallen mm. in love with the second novel and I, I didn't want to leave it. And I was so keen all the time to get away from the editing and back to the writing of the story. So that that was really encouraging. Well, congratulations, Avril. You're hugely popular with a better reading audience. Uh, Those Hamilton Sisters uh, is the first book and The Girls of Lake Evelyn is the second. Thank you for your time today. I have enjoyed our chat very much. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. 
Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.